come up here and, and then um, I, just to share the thing you shared at prayer. And then is Carrie in here? Carrie, who is that prayer? Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. Come here, Carrie. Yeah. I want both of you guys to share. We just had a great prayer time before service. And um, I just thought it would be good that the, the picture that you, got, that you had and then uh, the picture that you had. And then that'll be our transition to pray into the message. Fair enough? Cool. It's awesome. Yeah, I was kind of hoping you would ask me to share that. So I was uh, in here last night for Pihop the Well prophesying, and God gave me a picture of, uh, it was like a rope, and it, a knot was tied in it, and then I saw a bunch of ropes. But what I saw is the rope started to unravel, and, you know, that's not a great prophecy necessarily that you want to speak over someone, but but it didn't stop there because as the rope unraveled, God just kept creating more and more and more and more rope. So it's kind of what I got from that was he was saying, you know, don't one, let yourself kind of just unravel before the Lord. And two, don't worry, because whatever looks like it's unraveling, I'm just going to create more of it. So while the the more it was still frayed rope, but more was being created. But as it was being created, you know, when you see a rope unravel, you think, okay, it's about to break. But the fact that more was being created, it, it just wouldn't break. It couldn't break. So awesome. Thank you. Um, during prayer time this morning, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me about hiddenness and specifically like us to be a body that can see past the things of the flesh and really pray for people with how he's seeing them. And like an example of something that we were praying about was like if if the Lord gives us a word for someone who comes in to pray about finances over them, but they drove in in an Aston Martin to just trust him and know that there's more going on behind the scenes and not to be people that look at like everything, how people dress, how people act, but to really pray God's heart over them. And so I just feel like that was an invitation for us as a prayer ministry team, but also just as a church to really just partner with what he's saying over people and not be fooled by their Instagram pages or the cars they drive or whatever it is that we look at in LA and just to be past that. So that's a, that's on my heart. Okay. Yeah, Lord, we just thank you that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And I pray that we would partner with what you're partnering with in the secret place in everybody's lives, God, that we would um, just see people's hearts and, and have your heart for them. And we wouldn't judge based on things, on just exterior things, but we would partner with really what you are. And so, Lord, we just invite you to bring us deeper into that as a ministry and as a family. Amen. Amen. Oh, yeah. Uh, real quick, before I forget, we, we just want to update you on the mask policy. We are currently still inviting all of us to mask as we move around, kind of restaurant style is what we're aiming for, and we're going to reevaluate by June 15th, which is when the next kind of wave of restrictions and things is supposed to be updated. Um, so while you're seated, feel free. You don't have to be masking, and you can breathe a little bit. But as you move around and so forth, we just ask that you mask. And if you need one, there's on the back table right there. Cool? Thank you. Um, it's important to say that, but it ruined my transitional thought. It's fine. <laughs> no, it's good. I needed to say it. So Michael did not know that uh, last week David O was here. And if you didn't get anything from David O's message other than one phrase, he said as he closed something to the effect of a word from the Lord that was, things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. 
part of being a prophetic people are the people that are able to see as God sees and hear as he says. And therefore, when we see someone, whether they're in an Aston Martin or they're pulling up without a car, you can see gold in the person of poverty, and you can see poverty in the person of riches because the, the rule and the reign of the kingdom is not quantified in the same way that the physical realm here on earth is. The people of God are first and foremost spiritual. And so it's important as we recalibrate our lives towards the person of following Jesus. Are we hearing and are we seeing the way he says things and the way he does things? The, the talk today I'd like to, to stir us with uh, goes something like this. Faithfulness in a moment of influence. Can we be faithful in a moment where the world craves influence? We celebrate our 15th anniversary this week, Sue and I. Thank you. And uh, we're going to hopefully go away extended time this summer. So we did a little like one night because I've learned after 15 years if you try to pretend to not celebrate an anniversary because you're doing something later, super big error, guys, if you didn't know that. Like, you're an idiot. If you don't do something on the day, I've learned I'm an idiot. So it doesn't matter that I'm planning the biggest anniversary trip of our lives. She knows. It's not a surprise. She knows we're doing the anniversary trip. But I have learned in 15 years that if we don't do something on the day, I'm a moron, and I'm going to pay for it. Uh, one way or the other, I'm going to pay for it. So I might as well pay for it with things that she enjoys. Otherwise, I'm going to pay for it in things I don't enjoy. So, so we, we went away for a night. Um, that's neither here nor there. It was a great night. And uh, with our baby, by the way, she comes everywhere right now, and she's perfect in every way. Eventually, she'll be imperfect, but right now, she's perfect. But the, the, the point is, um, you know, what, what happens, people often talk about their marriage, and they'll say, you know, in a healthy marriage, you'll often hear someone say something to the effect of, I just keep rediscovering the beauty of this person inside and out over and over and over again. That's weird laughs. I mean, that's like, it's like kind of knowing, kind of agreeing, kind of like, eh. But the, the reality is we've all heard some version of that, right? And, and at the same time, what is that saying? If rediscovery is so vital for the health of a relationship, what would be critically deadly to a relationship on the other end? Maybe over-familiarity? If something just becomes so familiar, or you have turned yourself off from rediscovery of a relationship, and you're just going through any sort of motion where nothing is fresh, nothing is new, and there's no mystery to discover things afresh, that relationship will die or is in the process of dying. And I'm afraid we do that in the realm of the kingdom and, and with the Father. We often get so familiar with the things that we are meant to rediscover because we've, we've lost the taste of the beauty of the mysteries that he hides for us, not from us. And I want to look at a parable today, a parable of Jesus in Luke 19. You can turn there if you'd like. But I want to do that with, with a fresh context and a fresh lens, a lens of rediscovery. I want to start with 
an acknowledgement that we all see the world through lenses. We see them through personal lenses, family lenses, cultural lenses, city lenses, industry lenses, all kind of lenses. I mean, you can say, like, I wear blue sunglasses, you wear pink, you wear yellow, you wear green, and it affects the way we see everything. And, and I want us to go to a story of Jesus. It's that Matthew would say about Jesus, he only talked to the people with stories or parables. In fact, he did not say anything to them without using a story. If you are struggling in communication with anyone, with a partner, with a spouse, with a relationship, with a parent, with a child, with a colleague, have you tapped into the story that can connect with their heart? Jesus did not say anything apart from a story. If you are falling and you cannot feel connection with God, can I encourage you to revisit the stories that Jesus told in order to connect you to the kind of kingdom, the kind of father that he came to represent? So this series that we're in is called Falling in Love Again, and the reason being is because I believe that the way to fall in love again afresh and to recenter your life in the way of the kingdom, you have to rediscover the stories that pull us in to a way of life that unleash the passion, the purpose, the love that we're created to live in. All right, so Luke 19, it's a good one. And you already all know it. The parable of the talents or the minas or the pounds and every translation calls it something else. The point is, is this, this master went away and he gave these talents or these minas a sum of money, about three months wages to some servants. I guess I should read it. Should I read it? Would that be helpful? <laughs> so we know what we're talking about. All right. So a nobleman, he went away into a far country to receive for himself kingship and then return. So this guy was already a nobleman, and then he goes away. But he's going away in order to receive kingship and then return. This is a big deal, and everyone in Jesus' context knows what he's talking about. But none of us do because we're seeing through a Western lens. We're also seeing through a capitalistic lens, and we're going to demolish those lenses in a second. And he says, he calls these ten servants, he gave them ten pounds, and he said to them, ten of his servants, engage in trade in, in which I am coming back because I am coming back. But his citizens hated him. These are not the servants. There's, there's, there's several characters already. The master, the citizens, and the servants. But his citizens hated him. And they sent an embassy after him saying, we do not want this, whatever you want to call him, to reign over us. And he returned. He did return after receiving kingly power. And he said to call to him those servants to whom he had given the money and that he might know what business they had transacted. The first came before him saying, Lord, your pound or your money has made ten more. And he said, well done, good servant, because in a very little you've been faithful. I appoint you in authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And he said, I appoint you over five cities. Then another came and said, Lord, here's your pound. I kept it stored in a rag because I was afraid of you. Because you're a hard man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth you will, I will condemn you, you wicked servant. You knew or you experienced that I was a hard man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank and at least I should collect interest on my return? And he said to those standing by, 
take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10. In other words, that's not fair. And I tell you, everyone who has shall be given. And from him who has not, what he has shall be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. Ouch. Okay. It gets better. Um, the context of this parable is actually at Zacchaeus' house. So if you look earlier in that chapter 19, he's just come to Zacchaeus. You know the song we sing. Short man, tree, not good with money. Well, he was really good with money. He had taken a lot of money from a lot of people. And he had just repented. And in the context of that repentance, with everyone watching by and sitting on Jesus' every word, shocked that Jesus could bless the man in the house of someone that had done so much wrong. He tells this parable, this story. So the first thing I want us to notice is the context. The context is not what it seems. The context is that this was a common dynamic for a master to go away and seek some kind of kingship. We've all heard of Herod, Herod the Great, well-known ruler in that day. Did you know that Herod the Great made a trip to Rome in 40 B.C., seeking a Roman appointment as king, which he got? Later on, in 4 B.C., his son made a similar journey to argue his case against his half-brother. Jesus used this political scene, familiar to every single one of his audience members, to paint the stage. In other words, there's tension. If you're thinking in terms of Herod, if Herod was going away. So this isn't just like a master that has a little bit. We're talking about the king that has all power under Roman rule. Roman rule. If he goes away and you're faithful and loyal to him, and he comes back with authority, you better be his loyal servant. But if he goes away and doesn't get what he went away for, and everyone hates him, you don't want to be on his team. There's a real tension that he's inviting you to step into because that's the world they lived in. The nobleman calls ten servants and gives each of them a pound. This was like a hundred days' wages for a working man. One scholar, Mata Al-Miskin, suggests that the talents themselves symbolize faith, hope, and love and are vital components of the unearned salvation by grace that they had freely received. The pound was clearly a free gift from a generous master to each of his servants. As the nobleman gives these gifts, he tells them, engage in trade. I'm coming back. Here's the problem. We think of it like this. Engage in trade and make some money. We have a capitalistic lens. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth today on, on capitalism and to what degree our society should be capitalistic or not. I'm not really going after that at all. What I'm going after is regardless of where you stand on capitalism, we in the West have an entire society that operates with a lens of capitalism. They don't have that lens. The concept isn't go away and make as much money as you can, and if you do a good job, I'll be proud of you. The concept is, because if it was, it would simply be like this. Hey, I'm giving you some money. Go out there and do your best. You've limited time to prove yourself in the marketplace. 
On my return, I expect profits. Meaning, like, I'm going to come back. There's a limited amount of time. So let's see how much money you can make while I'm gone. But here's the thing. There's, there's two translation errors that we often do in the West. And if it's because I'm coming back or if it's until I'm coming back, oftentimes when you're looking in Scripture, the because or the until or these little words make a big difference on how we receive what's actually being transposed. If it's until, it doesn't really work. And most translations, all the way up until the Western translators started translating, would actually say, because I'm coming back. As in, he's giving him a faithful declaration that he's coming back. Because I'm coming back. It has nothing to do with time. It has everything to do with, will you go and engage in trade on my behalf as my servant, being loyal to me when everyone in town will know you represent me? And if it doesn't go well for me, you know what's going to happen to you. If it does go well for me, you know what's going to happen to you. It's more about the faithfulness, not the success that the master is seeking. So here's what I I want us to understand. There's a key question in this story. The key question goes like this. Are you willing to take risk and openly declare yourself to be the loyal servants of a man named Jesus in his absence in a world where many will oppose him and many will oppose his rule and his reign and what that looks like? Are you willing to be loyal? Are you willing to be faithful? That is the only question that this story is trying to ask. Not, will you do something and make some profits? We see it through a lens. In effect, it's saying, the master, once I return, having received kingly power, it will be easy to declare yourself publicly to be my loyal servants. I am more interested in how you conduct yourselves when I am absent and you have to pay a high price to openly identify yourself with me. That's the one that kind of gets to the source of my soul. We are finally coming into a moment right now, especially where we live, where to identify with Jesus comes with all kinds of baggage. And how to be a loyal servant isn't as cut and dry. Because honestly, I look at some of the people that might be doing church down the street, and to me, they don't represent Jesus. I don't know if I want to be associated with them. Some of us are like, I'm fine to be be with Jesus. It's just the rest of the Christians that are the problem. It's okay to say amen, people. We're not talking about us here, them out there, just for a minute. We have a difficult thing to navigate, don't we, in this moment in history? How do you become a loyal servant of Jesus right now where you can't just say, hey, I'm a Christian? You certainly don't want to say, I'm an evangelical Christian. Or whatever other baggage comes along with you attempting to associate yourself with the person of Jesus, we can't just say something in his name. 
We have to demonstrate the person of Jesus in word and deed in order to re-present him afresh. We actually have to start doing business in the marketplace on his behalf and start showing what it looks like. There's two layers of this. For them, and for many in other parts of the world right now, if you just associate with Jesus at all, it's a big deal. For us, we have a privilege. We have a tension to step into. But it's the same tension. Will you lean into the awkwardness of being loyal and faithful? There was this uh, question that um, this, this author that I'm loving, Ken Bailey, he, he's been living in the Middle East for 40-some-odd years. And, and he often goes around and teaches. And he was, he was teaching some Lafayette pastors. And, and these pastors uh, had a process of applying to their training program, if you will. And they basically said something like this. Um, he asked what their, what their questions were for the applicants. And they told him, the most important question we ask is, when were you baptized? And I'm like, oh, that sounds religious. <laughs> but, he, but he goes, why is the date of the baptism such an important question? And they answered, if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, they risked their lives and compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, we have many further questions to ask them about why they want to become pastors. In the parable, the master challenges his servants to live boldly and publicly as his servants, using his resources, unafraid of his enemies, confident in the future as his future. I think we have a moment where we can't just ask someone like a question and get to the heart of what they carry. We need many questions in our society today, don't we? It's because there's so many different representations of Jesus. When people have paid a high price for the person of Jesus, you can usually just sum it up in one question. To them, it was, what, have you been baptized? Why? What price have you paid? Because we know you've paid a price. Yeah, this is your story. Think about your story for a moment. Think about your story. When you share your story, what prices have you paid for the history of your life? In the kingdom, paying a high price and having to walk through that price to write a story that's bigger than yourself is the absolute honor of a lifetime. Where's the tension in your life right now where God's writing a piece of your story and you're resisting the hardship? You're resisting the wilderness. You're resisting the tension. And you're putting God on trial. And he's trying to write history with your life. The history of the church is filled with those who've paid a high price. And the master will remember every sacrifice, every hardship. I think some of us look at hardship through the lens of comparison. It'll kill your story. Fresh eyes today. Fresh eyes on your own story. Fresh eyes on his. A couple more points. There's a second translation uh, issue with this passage that I want us to see before we move on. 
And that's this concept of, of whether much business has been transacted or much business has been gained. It's a similar concept. If the master wants to find out what's been gained by trading, he will ask some uh, form of show me the money. But if he's asking how much business have you transacted, he's seeking to discover the extent to which they have openly and publicly declared their loyalty to him during the risky period of his absence. If he can see a full ledger, a full book of business that his servant has taken part of while he's gone, he knows that that's his master's man. A nearly empty account book will witness to the servant's fear of showing public loyalty to him. So this, this third servant that didn't do anything but hide it, he says he hid it out of fear of the master. But what he really showed is that he doesn't know the master. What he really showed is that he was fearful of those that came after the master, thinking that they may take him up. He didn't have any faithfulness, loyalty, or trust in the master to come back as a king. And so he comes back, and he actually accuses the master of being a thief. But the other thing we don't see in our cultural lens is that he was actually attempting to compliment him. There's so many twists in this story that, that it, it almost takes you having to kind of methodically go through it. If you're new, we just keep talking with the babies because there's many of them. And if I paused every time a beautiful little child had an issue. <laughs> Judah. So the point is, is that we have so many lenses that we already see this story in. You almost have to recalibrate yourself to every element that's sitting here. This one is that if you go and you see that he's, he's calling his master a thief in order to, to accuse him, you miss what he's actually saying. So this, this man was likely from more of like a Bedouin type of tribe. And even today, the Bedouins, they look at someone that comes in and takes from a community as someone that's prosperous, smart, witty, courageous, it's a good quality. In fact, there are still communities that look at actually tilling agriculture as stupid when you could just steal from somebody. I'm dead serious. That's what's happening right here. You have a clash of culture, and he's trying to determine what kind of master he serves. And he's banking on the kind of master that thinks that actually toiling is stupid, and he's going to come in and swoop. So all these accusations, he's trying to compliment the master. He's trying to say that he's like a thief that's really savvy and that just comes in and soups what he wants. But here's the mistake he makes. If the master is a nobleman in a settled agricultural community, meaning like it's a community that actually does plant and sow, you can guess what kind of community this master is part of. How many times did Jesus talk about planting and sowing agriculture? Endlessly. So what we're seeing here is this third servant doesn't know the master. He doesn't know the context. He doesn't know the world he's actually meant to serve in. And so what Jesus is saying that this is an insult, but not an insult on purpose. Jesus and his disciples are from a settled farming and fishing village. Clearly, the unfaithful servant has critically misjudged his master. The faithful servants had no difficulty understanding their master's true nature. It was the unfaithful slave 
who completely misunderstood the big man, and in trying to compliment him, he actually insults him. That's what's happening. He's desperately trying to gain approval, but he's lost it. Why? Because he didn't know the master in the first place. His unfaithfulness reinforced his distorted lens. Often with the faithful, their faithfulness will reinforce their loyal lens. What kind of lens do you have on the Father? And what is your life reinforcing? Faithfulness or unfaithfulness, loyalty or disloyalty. Things are not as they seem. Even in the Psalms, David says this, with the loyal, you show yourself loyal. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, pure, and with the crooked, you show yourself twisted. Meaning what? They'll see who they already are when they look at you. It's like God's not even afraid to prove himself right. And it's the same thing we see in the response from the master. He allows him to keep believing what he believed about him. And finally, here's the key at the end. Because there's a harsh declaration by the master at the end, right? Does that, has that ever unsettled you? It's like when I've read this story in the past, I'm like, ooh, that's kind of harsh at the end, but hell's hot. So, I mean, if that's, if, that's the, if that's the weakest attempt we can do at translating a story of Jesus, and we just go like, all right, I'm just going to be a faithful servant, and I'm going to try to take my gifts and just do something with them so that I can produce something for God and give it back to him so that I can do that. Even if you notice the language that the faithful servants used. They could have said something like, I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. He said, what did they say? Your gift has produced this. There's a posture of humility on the servants. They realized they didn't do anything to earn the gift. They just stewarded it. Even the way we look at our gifts, they're mine. My gifts. I just realized that was what I was studying this week. Me calling my gifts my gifts might be an issue. You ever thought about that? We talk about spiritual gifts. We go after the gifts all the time. And I wonder what, if one of the ways that we're meant to disciple people in the way of Jesus is to stop calling them ours. If maybe a culture of individualism has tainted the way that we even do small things and refer to the gifts that are his as ours. Because then I have to have some kind of right to do something with what's mine. It's the natural human response. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm speaking to myself here. When I give my son a gift and then he shows his brother, it, whose gift is it? It's not dad's anymore. It's mine. Instantly, it's as if I didn't exist. It's just mine. Every single one of my children, fallen as they are from their mother's side, it's it, my gift. <laughs> It's mine. I think of my gifts as mine. This, this story is meant to show us the gifts are not ours. 
They're his. <laughs> that statement was so false, I didn't even need to qualify it. But. So, so here's, here's where I want to land. Take your gifts. What's been put on your life? Whether you've got one or you've got ten. The issue is not what you produce. It's not what you profit. It's how faithful you are with it. With his. And here's the thing that got me. What does the master give in return for a humble servant that's done a good job to be faithful? The reward is responsibility. The reward is ruling cities. What if, what if that became the currency of our community? Responsibility. Those who understand the way the kingdom works realize the reward for the faithful doesn't look like the reward of this world. It's increased responsibility. You know, responsibility sucks. The last 15 years of my life, everything's been about more responsibility. I'm looking to get rid of my responsibilities, and all I do is get more. And then I realized, what kind of, what kind of mindset am I operating out of? My natural one, and that's super unhelpful. There's responsibilities in each of our lives, from paying the rent to taking care of an elderly parent to kids or a really difficult colleague. That's a responsibility. If we embrace the currency of heaven as responsibility, we'll stop cursing the things that God has put before us that are actually rewards for being faithful. Are there rewards in your life that he's put there because of your faithfulness and you're complaining about them like I have? That one hurts. I've complained about things the Lord has given my life as a reward. And then I saw them the way he sees them, as real gifts, as increase of my life of faithfulness. And why did I not see them? Because I was comparing to the prophets of the world. And when I see like the world sees, I'll get what the world gets. And when I don't get what the world gets, because I have my half my life in the kingdom and half my life in the world, I get frustrated. And I have this back and forth. And I have this horrible ping pong effect that just ruins my flipping life and gives me vertigo. I honestly think I've been having a weird kind of, it's not even, it's, it's been so slight that I've, I've just started talking about it with friends. Just like a slight dizziness every now and then. And as I met with the Lord, I'm wondering if there's like a physical manifestation. This is not biblical, by the way. This is just me processing tension of my own life with the Lord. Is there a physical manifestation with me trying to work out, am I all in to the, His way? Or am I still looking over my shoulder to the world's way? For me, that can even be like how they do church versus how we do church. It can be on good things. How they parent, how some we parent. How I lead, how they lead. I'm already feeling vertigo. I just, just showing you. I mean, and when the Lord settles me and I get into his presence, and I'm just looking at him and I'm allowing him to look at me, Original sin was Adam and Eve would not let the Father look at them in their nakedness. 
And when he can't look at you, he cannot speak over you who you are, whose you are. He cannot cover your shame, cover your sin. He wants to. He did not condemn themselves. They did. And when I take on that posture, I'm not allowing God to do what he paid a price to do. All right, I want to close with this. Is my second closing or third? All right. Five applications. Let me transition. Number one, the expectation. Five things I want us to glean from this passage. Shift your expectation. The master's primary expectation from his servants is courageous public faithfulness to an unseen master in an environment where some are actively opposed to his rule. Number two, the reward. The reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility. The servant who was pound produced 10 was not given a generous pension, a paid vacation, or a villa on the sea. He was appointed rule over 10 cities. Number three, survival. Did I put survival? Betrayal. No, betrayal. A static survival mentality of God's gifts is to betray the one who gives them. Have you betrayed the one who's given you the gifts? The servant who hid his pound was not dismissed, but instead judged unfaithful. And in the end, the gift was taken from him. I want to pause and say this. In the Middle East, when someone says no, it's not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of negotiations. Say it one more time, because I'm not sure we understand this in the West. When you get fired, whether you're working at Home Depot, <laughs> Saks Fifth Avenue, or J.P. Morgan, when you get fired from your boss and says, be out at 5 p.m., in the West, you'll be out at 5 p.m. In fact, you'll be out at 2 p.m. because you're already fired, and you'll be out as soon as you can clear your office. In the Middle East, that declaration is, oh, man, he's serious. I better start calling my friends and start negotiating. This is how it still works today. Why is that important? Look at the end of this passage. He declares the judgment on the wicked and yet doesn't carry it out. Remember the prophet Jonah? He goes to Nineveh after this ridiculous story of being swallowed by a whale and finally getting there, and then he tells Nineveh, you guys are terrible, God's going to kill you all because of your sin. And he doesn't give them an out. And what do they do? Well, maybe God will forgive us. And they repent, and he does. It's partially because they understood that maybe this is what God is like, and it's partially because this is the way the world worked in the culture and the context of the day. So potentially, what Jesus is saying here is that the stakes are really high. You better start negotiating. He's not condemning them to hell as much as saying, this is the directive of your life right now. Learn from the master. Learn from the servant that didn't understand what the master was like. Learn from the faithful that knew what he was really like. Remember the true character. And if you look through the Gospel of Luke, he time and again identifies the master as a gracious king, eager to forgive 
And yet he lets them sit in the weight of their actions. The fourth is the distorted lens. Unfaithfulness distorts the disobedient servant's vision of his master. This led him to radically misjudge his master's nature. The master's judgment on the unfaithful servant was to leave him with distorted perceptions of the master, created by his own unfaithfulness. And then finally, falling in love again. Jesus is clearly the generous master in this story. He expects the loyalty from his followers in his own good time, and he will make an accounting with them to the joy of some and the disappointment of others. He demonstrates his generosity by passing out unearned pounds by his generous rewards to faithful servants and his choice to not punish or dismiss the unfaithful slave. Even his judgment on his enemies is announced but not carried out. And then we're left with a bunch of unanswered questions. Questions like, how will those appointed to rule over the multiple cities actually figure out how to manage them? Does the unfaithful servant learn his lesson and repent? How will the enemies respond to the failure of the attack of the nobleman? What in the end will the master do with his determined enemies? The parable doesn't give us the answer because Jesus wants you to sit in the tension. So today, I want us to sit in the tension. And as we close... Uh, the worship team can start to come up, actually, if you'd like. <laughs> and as they do, I want you to just calm your hearts. You can bow your head. And, and I, I just want to ask some questions. I was, <clears throat> I was processing earlier this week. I call this a faithfulness rant of my own life. This was just my own stuff. And I felt, I felt the Holy Spirit just asking these questions in my own life. And as I ask these questions of myself, I invite you to do the same with your own. Will I follow the way of faithfulness in a moment of influence? Will I take faithfulness over influence? We want our lives to have impact. The world honors influence, but faithfulness is the influence of heaven. Don't let a familiar word be robbed of its impact. Let this familiar story have an impact on your life have an impact on history. I want my life to have an impact on history. I want to be part of building something of purpose. But I've realized the bigger issue is answering this question. Will I be faithful? Faithful to the call, faithful to the mission, faithful to the way of life, faithful to my wife, faithful to my kids, faithful to my church, to my community, to the places of responsibility, no matter how small or significant. Will I be faithful? Over the last year, I, I walked with one of my former students who got married at 21, divorced at 22. And he was just sitting there with so much shame, so much heaviness, so much burden, so much feeling of just failure. His wife had left him. She had broken the things and of course, he wasn't completely without any sort of responsibility. But how many of you know, when you step into a brokenness of a relationship like that, you carry the weight of the world regardless of what someone else did to you. And he was carrying the reality that he, still at a young age, was shattered. And so many in his life had warned him. And he didn't heed the call. 
And I didn't know what to say. Just be with him. Just sit with him. And I'm like, the last thing I'm going to do is just give him some cheesy scripture that's going to do nothing and just make him bitter at the word of God. How many of you have been there? You're in a vital moment or you've seen one and someone like quotes a scripture to kind of put a band-aid on something. And you just need to be present. And then what did the Lord do? He gave me a scripture. <laughs> so I'm like, I better really mean it if I'm going to say something. And, and I, I just went back through all the, all the people in the hall of faith. I, re, I remembered it's just like how God honors all these people of screw-ups. He honored Abraham. He honored Moses. He honored David. All, all men that had absolute tainted records of disgusting, disgusting stuff that their lives had been part of. And the only thing that qualified them to anything of rightness was faithfulness. Not performance, not a product. Were they faithful? And I looked at this student and I said, you haven't been perfect. You haven't listened perfectly. You haven't performed perfectly. Your performance is broken. Your relationship is broken. Your heart is broken. But I can look you in the face and say that you've been faithful. And God will be faithful with you. God will honor your life. You will love again. You'll love again.